The following podcast contains explicit language. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Welcome to TrumpCast, the show about the riches to wildly exaggerated riches story known as Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Just about everybody in New York has a favorite Trump story, and well, here's mine. When my son was in third grade, I went with his class to go ice skating at the Woolman Rink, which is in Central Park. It was a school field trip. It was a weekday morning. It was a beautiful day, and the kids were skating and having a good time. At some point, they had to get off the ice so they could clean it and take a break and have some hot cocoa and a snack. So after that was just about done, they were all ready to start skating again. And lo and behold, a podium is slid out onto the middle of the ice, and behind it is a very large orange-haired man in a big blue double-breasted overcoat who starts giving a speech. And the speech is about how in the 1980s, when the city couldn't fix the Woolman Rink, Donald Trump stepped in, paid for it, got it done in a few months, and isn't it glorious? And he was going on on this sort of self-praise, egomaniacal speech. And these kids were just sitting there, not really knowing what was going on. And Donald Trump didn't appear to have any idea that he was giving a speech to a bunch of eight and nine-year-olds. And at some point, as he's going on, you start to hear, we want to skate. We want to skate. We want to skate. So did Donald Trump give way to this group of adorable eight-year-olds who wanted to go ice skating? I'll let you guess. So a lot of my other favorite Trump in New York stories come from Mark Singer, a New Yorker writer who spent a lot of time with him when he was writing a profile in 1997. If you've never read that New Yorker piece, you should. It's one of the best magazine profiles ever written. Today on the show, I'll talk to Mark Singer about what the hell is wrong with Donald Trump and whether he has changed in the past 20 years. But first, we found an amazing Trump speech from 1959. Here it is, a Trumpcast exclusive, Donald Trump's eighth grade student council campaign speech. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. This is this is tremendous. This is absolutely amazing. Look at this turnout. This is this is incredible. My name is Donald J. Trump, and I'm running for student council president for the eighth grade class. The New York Military Academy is a special place, and we're going to make it better. Let's talk about cafeteria food. It's sick. It's disgusting. I'm not kidding. It's really, really horrible. We can't eat it. And the lunch lady, Mrs. Ranzetti, who, by the way, has endorsed me, tells me that portion size is regulated by the school. We're going to put an end to that, folks. We are. We're going to make the food in the cafeteria great again, and we're all going to start eating well when Trump runs student council. Homework. It's out of control, folks. Out of control. We have superstar students, which many I know personally because we're very good friends. 
They're doing five, six hours of homework every night just to get by. Teachers are extending their influence well beyond the classroom and affecting the business of our lives. Teachers should not be regulating our downtime. It's as simple as that. That's what parents do. I'm opposed to teachers playing parents. I've always been opposed to TPP. My opponent right now is endorsing TPP, teachers playing parents. Can you believe that? I mean, frankly, really, what is wrong with this guy that he's in favor of TPP? Because, folks, I have to tell you, this is bad stuff. This is really, really bad stuff. The stupidity is going to end, folks, and I'm going to do it. Athletics. This is an area I really, really love. I have to tell you something. I'm probably the most athletic person in this room right now. We need to be more aggressive on the field, folks. That's how you win. When Trump runs student council, we're going to be proud of our sports teams. We're going to give them the equipment they need to defeat the other NEPSAC schools. We're not going to have another embarrassing defeat like we had last year on the soccer field. That was horrible, I have to tell you. That was really, really horrible to that terrible school, the Inley School in Situate. It's a crappy school. No one is going to be tougher on the ISIS than Trump. Our athletes are going to have the equipment they need to get the job done. Believe me. Believe me. What's going on over there? What's the noise? What? Okay, get him out. No, get him out of here. Get him out of here. No, yeah, him. Get him out. I, don't, I want him out of here. I don't want him here. Get him out. Okay, fine. Sad. That's sad, folks. I have to tell you. Get. Yeah, go ahead. Get him out of here. I'll pay your legal fees. It's fine. Get him out. My guest today is Mark Singer. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and his book, Trump and Me, is coming out in July. Uh, But Mark is also the author of what I would say is my favorite piece that's ever been written about Trump, which is a long profile he did in The New Yorker in 1997. Uh, Mark, welcome to Trumpcast. Uh, Thank you, Jacob. So, Mark, you had a lot of access to Trump when you were writing about him for The New Yorker. How did that happen? Well, it just happened because I think it was always the case, you know, Trump needed the press and the press enjoyed Trump. So Tina Brown was in the editor of The New Yorker. She decided she wanted a piece about Trump. And uh, she had me as uh, one of her writers that she could sort of throw at the problem. I think that was a more or less arbitrary decision on her part. And he was happy to agree to it, even though he felt that she'd sandbagged him years earlier when she was editing Vanity Fair. He agreed to do it. I don't think it's hard to figure out why he agreed to do that. It's it's never enough. And you were on you were on his plane. You went to Mar-a-Lago. He showed you his apartment. I mean, you really had it seemed like you had uh, you had a all access pass. I had pretty good access, and um, you know, I was a fly on the wall. Also, I wasn't I wasn't barging in with a lot of questions. It wasn't necessary. You you, you just tried to stay out of the guy's way in terms just letting him talk. You knew that if you let him talk, you were going to get something. So uh, he and he doesn't disappoint uh, these days in the same way. I was I I, I I I thank him for the access that he gave me, and of course I wasn't taking any adversarial or hostile positions with him ever. I try to get along with the people I'm writing about. I will say this. Trump was the only person I ever wrote about, ever, where going in, I knew this was not likely to be a flattering outcome. 
but I also try to just be objective in my fact gathering. I just objectively, he was appalling. <laughs> he still is. Uh, so that piece I was just mentioning, which is approaching 20 years old now, is kind of a depiction of, uh, I don't know, what I would call high Trump. It was uh, after he'd come back after near bankruptcy. It was in the mid-90s, and he was really riding high then, right? Well, he was trying to persuade everyone that he was riding high again. This is part of the ongoing branding of Trump. He basically had been through whatever you want to call a bankruptcy. He'd, he'd had all of his debt reorganized, and he was not creditworthy when I wrote about him, really. But he was talking a usual Trump game. It was, uh, you know, at that point in that piece, it's still possible to sort of enjoy Trump as this kind of carnival barker sort of piece of Americana, you know, New York BS artist, but you sort of describe him as a as a comic opera figure. I try, I described him as a comic opera figure. I, mean, I, I described his, you know, sort of when he came on the scene in New York in the in the seventies and and then extending into the eighties as as the life he was living with Ivana, his first wife, was in kind of Oprah Buffa parody, self parody of wealth, and uh, all that excess was very deliberate. There was comedy there. I think I ultimately found within Trump uh, a sort of deeper existential darkness, you might say. The the outward Trump was, you know, he had this great descriptions of the distinction between flash and glitz and between super luxury and super, super luxury. Yeah, luxury, super luxury and super, super luxury were the, the, that was the taxonomy of his real estate. And all that was entertaining, I, I must say. I mean, it, was, it was, I don't know, I don't even, I never knew, well, I should, I should have known, but it was always hard to parse Trump, even then, as to how much of the show was, was a show, and how much of the phenomenon of Trump as this branding genius but there, there, he was determined to be a persona rather than a person. And I guess there was a lot of self-awareness in all that. I don't know, looking at him today, when he, how he's improved or hasn't in that regard. He really doesn't seem to get it about himself. That's, that's to me, the, the enigma of Trump. There's, there is still sort of an existential mystery, right? I mean, I think in the piece you say he's devoid of any irony, you know, but does he have any self-awareness or is he cynical or is he really just an extreme narcissist who is, has, a, has a literal attitude about bigness and winning and victory and wealth and kind of means everything he says in a, in a, in a quite direct way? I think it's I think it's kind of all of the above. Here's the question that I've, I'm just that's coming to mind right now: is when we look at Trump, what is it that we're that we're fascinated by? Is it that we're in on something that he's not in on? That that there is this lack of self awareness. We can see it; he can't see it, and here he is, you know, at loose in the electorate. Or are we just kind of gobsmacked? that anybody is getting away with this, that self-awareness isn't really necessary for him to proceed. He's shown this certain sensitivity to, you know, feedback. Obviously, he cares about polls. But, you know, even if you think back 10 days ago, it looked like Trump was cratering. 
Did you get that sense then? Yes, absolutely. I thought so. And I'm not sure he's fully uncratered yet. But I, I don't know. But I think, I think that in the last, I mean, I'm, I'm paying attention to this. Obviously, you are as well. It feels like in the last 72 hours, 48 hours, he's having a bit of a recovery. And I'm wondering along the way whether he has learned anything from that. And are we, are, I, I, look, I, I'm not even sure. I, I kind of want him to get the nomination. I really do. <laughs> not just for commercial reasons. No. I'm, I want him to get the nomination because I'm confident that the voters will reject him in the general election. But um, certainly, though, among those supporters are real true believers who are invested in this man as some sort of a strange white knight. This guy, this guy tells it like it is. This guy sees it. There, that's that's that deep, deep bedrock of support that is basically impervious to any of the things that everybody else would regard as gaffes or just kind of beyond the pale. The whole other question is what is whether he means what he says. What do you, what do you think? Do you tr- think Trump means it, or do you think his politics are just calculated to get him votes? Well, you know, there was that moment in the New York Times editorial board when he says, "If I see the crowd is getting a little bored, I, I say we're going to build the wall." <laughs> so that that certainly suggests a disingenuousness to me. Um, What's left out of this entire discussion, of course, is the disconnect between what he says and what he could actually even get done. Um, a huge gap. He, Trump, Trump doesn't seem to have given, even still, much thought to governance. He really doesn't care about that. And that but that's also consonant with my suspicion all along that he's never wanted to be president. He's wanted to run for president. He's wanted to have people, you know, showing up at his rallies. But I still, to this minute, don't think that he actually wants to win other than because he wants to say he won. So was he then at the point, do you think, of that he's a little terrified that he might win? Even getting the nomination brings you closer to the presidency than, than surely, I mean, we'd, his perspective may be very distorted, but he can't have thought he would get even this far. He, he he is if not, nothing if not a really tough fighter. He uh, he doesn't like it when he thinks that uh, it's not going his way. He'll he'll react, of course, like the five year old that he is, and whine about the rules because he hasn't done any organizing. He has no ground game in all these different states where he's losing delegates, you know, because of Cruz's superior organization. But that is just wanting to win, or or maybe the maybe the, maybe it's a that's the wrong way to characterize it. Maybe the, there is a really deep humiliation and losing that he's trying to avoid. I haven't, I haven't figured out the taxonomy of that, really. Mark, you don't, take the, you don't sort of take the cheap out I do of a clinical diagnosis, but I had a psychiatrist on the program who said, look, the, you know, the symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder are, are so obvious here that you just can't, you can diagnose them from, you know, 10 miles away. I mean, I guess in politics, that's sometimes referred to in lay terms as megalomania. But, you know, are we being too subtle looking at them in the character? The guy has a particular mental illness, with, which most of us are familiar with, right? He is definitely mentally ill. There's no question about that. And everybody's talked about, I've, I've listened to that podcast, of course, and I'm, I thought the question is not about a narcissistic personality disorder. I really thought the question is, is he a psychopath or a sociopath? <laughs> and where do you come down? I, I know what I want to believe. 
which is, you know, the worst possible thing. But what I really am, 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 am interested in is the willful inflicting of pain and harm, the unconscionable pain that he's willing to inflict. That seems patently obvious in this man's character and, and personality, that you don't say these things about Muslims, you don't say these things about Mexicans. Right. Well, seeking out, seeking out victim, looking for weak victims seeking them out, inflicting pain on them, and enjoying right. it, right? And that is, right. those are those would correlate with being sociopathic or, I don't know, psycho... I'm not sure, I don't, I'm not sure I understand the difference between sociopaths and psychopaths, but I know there is one. Well, uh, you know, certainly sociopaths are unconscionable liars. And that seems to be the case with Trump. I mean, uh, you know, we're not talking about Ted Cruz and his particular talents for... for just telling big lies and small lies. I mean, Trump's right about lying Ted Cruz, but of course <laughs> then there's the total self-awareness disconnect about, you know, lying Donald Trump. Well, the great line so, in your piece, I think, from the 90s is, wouldn't believe him if his, if his tongue were notarized. Right, that was the deputy mayor of New York he said, I wouldn't believe Donald Trump if his tongue were notarized. And, yeah, that you don't really need much more than that, but going back, going back to this other question, though, I, I, I do, I do really think that he is so callous that I'm wondering why his deep base also doesn't ever. They, they, they're not in a position to ask that question. Is he's just using us? He is using them. Obviously, they're, 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 look, Donald Trump has one constituent, and we know who that is. These people that show up at his rallies, you know, they are under operating on, under whatever delusion that has been cast by Trump's own self-delusion, I think. It's the delusion that he cares about them or actually ever really could care about anyone other than himself, you mean? Correct. Correct. That's, that's the way to put it. And I, I you know, it, so when we talk about whatever, you know, mental illness Trump has, you tell me, do you think that Trump is deluded? Uh, yes. Uh, he doesn't perceive the world in the ra- a rational way. I mean, I think, you know, you get it in your piece about, you know, essentially there's a sort of loneliness there. He doesn't really have any human relationships. I agree with that completely. Boy, uh, boy, can we get a lot of angry mail if we say this, but I'll say it, you know, how does a person like that love another person? Yeah. But what about his kids? You know, people often point to that as an example. We had um, we, Hannah Rosen hosted the program last week and had on her mother, who's a Trump supporter, and actually made co- kind of the best case I've heard for Trump. And part of it, of course, was dismissing everything he says about about uh, immigrants and minorities, saying either he doesn't really mean that or, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't take that seriously. But she said, you know, when I look at his relationship with his kids, he seems to have been a good parent and he seems to have produced great children. Well, um, his daughter is an impressive person. I have children, and I'm, I'm not really arrogant enough to believe that I... I, I believe they're independent. I, I, I mean, they weren't raised in an abusive atmosphere, and they turned out to be well-adjusted people, as near as I can tell. But I think they could have done that with me being, uh, you know, not a great presence because they had wonderful mothers. And you know, I've been married more than once, evidently, when I say that, but that's the case, you know. So I think that Trump's kids had attentive mothers. 
I think Ivana Trump for what, uh, whatever other whatever else she did. They they do look up to their father, but I I, I think they're very cowed by their father. I see that in the sons. Um, they don't say much. They just seem to be well behaved. Mark, let me ask you this: When you did that piece almost twenty years ago, if he, there's not much in it about his politics. What, what would you have said his politics were then? Would you have predicted they're anything like what they've ended up being now? What do you, I don't even think he has politics still, Jacob. Well, uh, would you? Would, yes, would you? I mean, you know, the, the the views that are the hallmark of his campaign being anti-immigrant anti-trade, highly nationalistic in regard to China and other countries. Would you have seen all, seen all that coming from spending time with him back I then? I saw none of that coming, but I still go back to this question of uh, everything you've just described. Does that add up to a politics, or does it add up to tactics for getting attention? Because what you have with the other candidates uh, is is an ideological consistency, and I uh, I don't find much ideological consistency in the positions that Trump takes. Do you? Well, no, but I think I, I have observed that politicians who who thrive tend to believe what they say, and they may say it first and believe it later. But when I see Trump now, I don't think there's any part of him that's saying, oh, I'm just saying this. I don't really mean it. I mean, in the right setting with the New York Times editorial board, he'll say what they want to hear, which is don't take that too seriously. But uh, no, when I think he's whipping up these crowds, I think he's now a believer in what, he, what he's saying. Okay, so what about the times when he wanted to solve the deficit by raising taxes, taxes on the rich back when? This is back in 2000 or whatever, wasn't he talking about this? Uh, or, or when he was for socialized medicine. I mean, there, you know, he right. was, that's part of why I asked you the question, because back in the 90s, one, of, one could have taken a few hints of things he'd said here and there and said, boy, if this guy ever runs for office, it'll be in a Democratic primary. Well, I, I, again, I don't think there was ever anything serious about that. I always thought it was about Trump massaging his own ego, getting the attention. And there was that famous, you know, moment when uh, after he, he fixed the skating rink in Central Park in the 80s, then he staged that uh, walk across, I don't know, is it the Brooklyn Bridge or the 59th Street Bridge, or, you know, the uh, Queensboro Bridge, that he was going to repair the infrastructure. Right. <laughs> this was just a large... Uh, you know, public display of autoeroticism. And <laughs> I, I never thought that it was about a commitment to any political philosophy because I never detected any. So the that's the short answer. I didn't see it then, but I also don't see it now. Uh, Mark, I want to I want to wrap up. This is we could go on, but I want to wrap up by reading uh, just a great paragraph uh, from your piece in the New Yorker, which I think is one of the great summations written about Trump, and is to me is as true now as when you wrote it. And then uh, I'll give you a chance to comment if you want. You wrote that, of course, the comeback Trump, which was what we were talking about in 1997, is much the same as the Trump of of the 80s. There's no new Trump, just as there never was a new Nixon. Rather, all along, there have been several Trumps. The hyperbole addict who prevaricates for fun and profit, the knowledgeable builder whose associates profess awe at his attention to detail, the narcissist whose self-absorption doesn't account for his dead-on ability to exploit other people's weaknesses, the perpetual 17-year-old who lives in a zero-sum world of winners and 
total losers, loyal friends, and complete scumbags, the insatiable publicity hound who courts the press on a daily basis when he doesn't like what he reads, attacks the messengers as human garbage, the chairman and largest shareholder of a billion-dollar public corporation who seems unable to resist heralding overly optimistic earnings projections which then fail to materialize, thereby eroding the value of his investment. In sum, a fellow both slippery and naive, artfully calculating, and recklessly heedless of consequences. I don't have any. Uh, I don't think there's anything to add to that, Mark. I just wanted to surface it as, as someone who got Trump to a T 20 years ago. Well, I appreciate that, Jacob. I, I, I do want to make one correction, though. I think I misread when I described him as a perpetual 17-year-old. I think I was off by at least eight or nine years. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 he's much closer uh, psychologically, behaviorally, to an eight or a nine-year-old. Mark Sanger is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His book, Trump and Me, comes out in July. Mark, thanks for joining me on Trumpcast. Thank you, Jacob. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. Tell us what you think of the show by giving us a rating and review on iTunes. And don't forget to hit subscribe while you're there to get our latest episode as soon as it releases. Trumpcast is produced by Henry Milofsky and Jason DeLeon. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Thanks for the assist today from Andrea Salenzi. And we're very excited to announce Trumpcast's new partnership with Second City. We've got a lot of fun stuff planned for the show. Special thanks to Steve Waltian at Second City for writing today's sketch. John D. Domenico, as always, was the voice of the Donald. Today, I'll leave you with this clip from a 2005 episode of Sesame Street, where Donald Grump, a garbage-hoarding mogul, finds his new garbage-counting apprentice. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Nosy pants. The Grump is coming to Sesame Street. The Grump? Donald Grump. Who's Donald Grump? Don't give me patience. Where have you been? Donald Grump happens to have the most trash of any grouch in the world. Yeah, he's loaded with trash. His name is on every piece of trash in town. I'm Donald Grump, and I have more trash than all of you, so... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.